Grace Redeemer, uh, my name's Mike McCullough. Uh, I figured the best thing I can do to uh, help you guys listen is let you know that I am Susan's son so that I can endear you to me real quick and say, okay, he even if his message is bad, he can't come all bad. He comes from Susan, so that's good. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, again, my name is Mike McCullough. Thank you so much for letting me come and share with you this morning. Before we jump into things, uh, if you guys would pray with me and let's ask God to speak with us today. <clears throat> Father God, we come before you today, um, God, bringing uh, just need. That's all we have. That's all we have to offer. Um, we need you, God. We need you to speak to us. We need you to illuminate your scripture, illuminate your word, Lord. Um, so I just pray in this time, Spirit of God, that you would come and speak to us through your word. Um, let us exalt uh, the one that we just sang about. So we, Lord, we thank you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we are going to be in John chapter 12, so uh, if you haven't already turned to that, or if you have a device and want to flip on the Bible app uh, and jump there, we'll be in John chapter 12. As you're going there, uh, I do want to start off with a quick story. So uh, a few weeks ago, I accomplished one of those bucket list items, you know, thing that I had never been able to do, but finally crossed off my list, and I actually had a work trip that sent me to New York City. I'd never been to New York City before, so I was really excited to go there. So I spent a few days there, again, had some work meetings. Uh, but on one of the days, I had a few hours in the afternoon, so trying to be like very pragmatic and practical, I'm like, I'm going to make the most of my limited New York City experience, and I'm going to try and see as much as I can in like a three-hour period. And so you can see all of New York in three hours, right? I figured we could do so I was staying in Times Square, so I literally mapped out this big circle and saying, okay, what can I do in like three hours and what sites can I see? So I wanted to go see Ground Zero, I wanted to go see Central Park and uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral, Rockefeller Center, so a big loop uh, around Manhattan as much as I could. So, like anybody who's in a new place, I didn't know where I was going, so uh, in order to map out my route, I pulled out my phone, pulled out Google Maps, said, here I am. First things first, I want to get to go see uh, the 9-11 memorial and go see Ground Zero. I wanted to make sure I, I checked that one off the box. So I hit go, and it tells me exactly how to get there. In fact, Google is, I don't want to say Google is great. I don't know what our feeling is on Google here. They own our life. But anyways, uh, in theory, to get to Ground Zero from where I was, it was great because it mapped out exactly where I needed to go. It literally told me, okay, walk over to this corner, uh, get on the subway at this corner, get on this train, it's going to have these many stops, and at the end of these stops, it's going to drop you off right uh, at the World Trade Center Plaza. And so it was exactly what I needed to do. So what did I do? I grabbed my phone, I walked to that corner, uh, I went down to the subway station, I bought a ticket, uh, I went through the little turnstile, I'm like, this is kind of like the movies, which uh, is kind of cool, because it looks exactly like it does on the movies. And I sit there, and I wait for the E-train, and the E-train is going to send me down, uh, and I just really got to ride it to the end and get there. Uh, so the train pulls up, E-train, I hop in. Uh, and I start going. Now, a smart person like yourself would have realized what I realized before you got on the subway. I realized after. So a subway is a train. It goes one in two directions, right? Either it goes one way or the other way. I realized there's a 50% chance I'm going the wrong direction in this train. So a smart person would have asked somebody before they got on the train. I asked somebody literally as the door closed, hey, is this, is this going to the World Trade Center Plaza? And like, guys, oh, tourist. Oh, no, no, no. You are going the wrong way. So I literally was heading, I should have been heading south. I was heading north. Uh, and so I had to reroute. Um, but here's the thing. Not only was I not going towards my destination, I was actually going further away from the destination. 
And, and here's the point of that story I say is that, man, I did a whole bunch of things right leading up to that. And I did one thing wrong, and that made all the difference, right? I looked up, I went to the right subway station, I went and bought the right ticket, I went through the turnstile, I even waited for the E train, and I got on the E train, but I got on the train that was going in the wrong direction, so I wasn't going to where I needed to be. We all know this, we can look back on life, you can make a whole bunch of right decisions, but one crucial wrong decision can make all the difference. So we're going to look at a story today where we're actually going to hone in on a couple characters in this particular story that have very similar lives, very similar experiences, but there's going to be one key difference that sends their trajectory in completely opposite directions. Okay, so I know we just read it, but I I want to read it again in just a second. Um, But let me kind of set the context. I don't want to assume anything. I know, I think we're in the the Beatitudes going through here. That's great. So you guys are familiar with reading the gospel stories, the gospel narratives. Well, we're going to be in the gospel of, of John. And John, the way he maps out his story is a little bit different than the other Gospels. Uh, But the thing I love about John is John actually makes it very clear why he wrote his Gospel. Um, You don't need to flip to it. I'll kind of summarize it. But in John chapter 20, verse 30, John says, hey, Jesus did a ton of other stuff, a ton of other miracles that aren't even written down in this book. But these are written down so that you may believe that he is the Christ. And by believing, you may have life in his name. So if you want to know, spoiler alert, what we're going to talk about today, at the end of the day, we want to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and we want to have life in his name because that's why John wrote the book. So in that, here's kind of a cool thing about John's story. If you look at the Gospel of John, it's really kind of uh, divided into two big sections. The first two-thirds of John's Gospel, the vast majority, cover about three years of Jesus' life from the beginning of his public ministry, uh, pretty much all the way up to the week leading before his crucifixion and death. And the last third of the gospel is just one week. So the first two thirds cover cover three years, but the last third covers one week. We're going to have a story that's right there at that center point, at that transition point. So kind of wrapping up the three years of Jesus's public ministry, but we're about to enter into that crucial last week of Jesus's life before his death and resurrection. And this story falls right on that. Now in that first two thirds of the story, Jesus, as we might be familiar, comes out and he does, in broad terms, a couple big things. One, he speaks the truth about not just God, but about us, about the world. He tells and teaches the truth about the reality of who we are and who God is and how we can know him and what the stakes are and what the consequences are. But then he also validates his teaching by doing these miracles saying, I am God incarnate. I am the Lord over all creation. You can believe the words that I'm teaching you because I have command over all things. And so if you're familiar with John's gospel, he kind of ramps up those miracles, kind of starts with the water, uh, uh, turning the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And he works his way up, works his way up. And just before our story in John chapter 12, in John chapter 11, he does what's arguably his biggest miracle uh, to date. And what is that? The raising of Lazarus. Yeah, so you got this guy, Lazarus, his uh, sisters, Mary and Martha. Lazarus dies, and then Jesus, with uh, Lazarus being dead for four days, comes, speaks life to him. Lazarus is raised from the dead. He comes back out of the tomb, and there we are. So the last point before we get to our story is this. In this story that we're about to read, Lazarus has been uh, raised, and there's two groups that are in great tension with each other now. There's a group that is following Jesus. 
people that believe in Jesus. They've now seen the miracle of this Jesus Messiah literally raise somebody from the dead, and they say, we're in. You're the Messiah. You're the promised one. We're following you. We'll leave everything uh, to, to pursue you. And because that group was getting bigger, another group was getting bigger. The chief priests and the Pharisees who saw they were losing their power. They were losing their control, and they looked at this Jesus that they considered a blasphemer and someone who was stealing that power and control and said, we've got to put this guy to death. This guy must die. And so we're going to enter into that last week of Jesus' life where they uh, put him to death. So that's the tension that we find our story. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. He's getting this big following of people who have seen that miracle, but he's also made a lot of people really mad. And so behind the scenes, they're at work to put him to death. Okay, let's jump in. All right, I'm going to read it again. And I apologize, there's a typo. We were supposed to go all the way to, chapter, uh, to verse 8, but that was my fault because I sent in the wrong uh, verse. So blame the preacher. All right, uh, so here we go. Read with me again now that we know the context and, we're, and, the, and the tension that's happening outside. We're going to see tension within this dinner itself. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and filled with the, fragrant, uh, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. In this story, we see a handful of people that we're going to unpack today. But as we unpack the people in the story, we're going to ask ourselves the same question. What's the difference? What's the difference? What's the difference between these two people that we're going to talk about? What's the difference between Jesus and everything else? And finally, for us, what's the difference in our life? One question, three time, what's the difference? I keep it simple because I need it simple. What's the difference? So let's unpack this story. Again, we've got this tension brewing outside. People are wanting to put Jesus to death. People are following. But in this uh, dinner, let's kind of unpack the story that's right here. Because in this dinner, it's not surrounded by a mixed company. These are people that are claiming to know and follow Jesus. And so it's a little bit of a stretch, but you could almost say this is almost like a church group, church gathering, right? Even though the people in there, as we're going to see, act and think differently, these are all people who claim to know and follow Jesus, Okay, these aren't the outsiders, the sinners, the people that are Jesus' enemies. And that's really important because as we think about finding ourselves in this story, we need to realize it's not us versus them in this story. This is us. This is us in the story, people who claim to know and follow Jesus. So a couple things happen as we unpack the story here. Six days before the Passover, John is leading up to, again, that Passover meal, the crucifixion week that's happening, the last couple weeks of Jesus' life. Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. We're going to talk about that again a little bit, because for some reason, it's really easy to callously think like, oh yeah, Jesus raised somebody from the dead. That's, I know that. That's no big deal. Okay. All right. Jesus raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, of course. Martha. We know Martha. She served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. So to set the dinner story here, 
We've got Jesus. They're throwing a dinner for him. There's a lot of disciples there. Uh, in fact, this story is in the Gospels and other places where it talks about multiple disciples there. But it really hones in on four other people, Lazarus, Mar- Martha, Mary, and Judas. For our time today, we're really going to focus in on Mary and Judas. But I want us to set the stage here for a second. Because it's actually a very tense scenario that we're going to walk ourselves into if we don't really kind of realize what's going on here. Think about this. There's a dinner party here where Jesus is here. But notice what John says in verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him. Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Now for us, as we read that really quickly, that we may skip over that. Do you realize just a few verses ago, Jesus was visiting the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus was saying, pass the potatoes to the, at that point. How crazy is that? How crazy is that? To put it in perspective, and I don't mean to get like super emotional really quickly, but think about the intensity of what's about to happen. And we're going to step into uh, Mary's shoes a little bit to see why she responded the way she did. I want you to think about right now, very quickly, we're not going to dive into it, but the person that you miss the most because they've passed. And what if you imagine your dinner table tonight? They're going to be there tonight. Think about that. Think about this scene that's, that's happening right now on that table. And here's the cool thing. You think about that tonight. Not only is that person that you're imagining going to be there, but they're the guest of Jesus who made it all happen, and Jesus is going to be there tonight at your dinner table too, right? So the person that you missed in Jesus, I want us to feel the weight of what this scene is because it's going to help us understand the magnitude and the difference between Mary and Judas. So in this scene, John makes it very specific. Lazarus was reclining at the table. Why is that important? Well, we'll see in just a second. Before we dive into the difference of Mary and Judas at this intense scene, let's talk about where Mary and Judas are the same, okay? Because I'll be honest with you, I know how Judas's story ends, so I already kind of like put in these ideas. I import these ideas of the bad guy into Judas's life because I know how he's going to end. But for a moment there, let's think about the way that Mary and Judas are the same before they're different. Before they're different. One, they both knew Jesus. They both knew Jesus for a long time. Judas knew Jesus for at least three years, right? Judas was one of the disciples that Jesus called and spent three full years with him. How many guys have ever been on a mission trip? where you spend like a, a week with somebody? Or how many of you guys have ever been on a work trip with a buddy that you didn't like? Yeah, you're like, I'm not going on a mission trip with that guy. I don't want to know that person. But when you spend a few days with somebody, you get to know them really well. Imagine if that work trip was three years. Yeah, you might be looking for another job <laughs> or something like that because you don't want to spend that much time with somebody. Imagine a mission trip that lasts three years and the intimate way you would know each other. Judas knew Jesus. We know that Mary and Martha and, Ju- uh, I'm sorry, and Lazarus also knew Jesus because the interactions they had with him in previous texts, but also because of the terminology in some of the Gospels where it says Jesus loved them. Loved them. So they both knew, sorry, I'm going to try not to trip over myself. They both knew Jesus. They both were loved by Jesus. And they both saw Jesus do amazing things. They both saw Jesus turn water into, well, maybe, maybe didn't see both Jesus turn water into wine, but they saw Jesus do some amazing things. They at least both saw Jesus rise their uh, Lazarus from the dead. The reason I say that is it's easy to give Judas a hard time, but realize Judas, over three years, knew Jesus and saw amazing things that happened to Jesus, just like Mary. So why did they act so differently in this moment? What was the difference? What was the key thing that was different? Well, again, let's jump back into the story. 
the end of verse 2, Lazarus was one of those who were climbing at the table. Mary, therefore, took an expensive ointment, <coughs> uh, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet in Jesus and wiped him, wiped him with his hair. In this scenario, where he had two people that really knew Jesus well and saw the power and knew who Jesus was, one of them decided to do something pretty crazy. And in the midst of all these people, took this really expensive ointment, broke it open, and anointed Jesus' head and feet, and in other areas it talks about anointing his body so that the whole house filled with this fragrance. I love the way that verse 3 starts. Again, I skipped over it probably the first hundred times I read it. Mary, therefore. Why do you put the word therefore? That's an intentional word by the Holy Spirit through the gospel writer John. Therefore. You know what therefore indicates here? The verse before that says, Lazarus was, was reclining at the table. Mary, therefore. Think about that. Lazarus, her brother raised from the dead, was sitting at the table. Mary, therefore, did this. Therefore is an instinctive, impulsive reaction to the situation. She saw her brother raised from the dead. She saw the one sitting next to him that had caused it. She knew, like John's gospel was purposed, that this would be the Messiah, the Christ, and you would have life in his name by believing him. She believed him. So her instinctive impulse was to say, let me give something of huge value to Jesus. Mary, therefore. That therefore is a powerful word. That instinctive response only happens when deep down, deep within you, something's changed, right? Therefore, that instinct, that impulse, contrast that to Judas. Jump down. The end of verse 3, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray Jesus said, why was this uh, anointment not sold for a hundred denarii and given to the poor? Mary started with a therefore. Judas starts with a but. Mary's impulse was something instinctual inside her because of who Jesus was. Judas was something that was trying to deny that reality for another end. So, so I know that's kind of a, at the end of the day, what's the difference? What's the difference between Mary and Judas? And what's the difference between someone being willing to just give this extravagant gift to Jesus and somebody else who's trying to use Jesus for his own gain? The difference is a heart change. The difference is Mary's heart was changed so that she treasured Jesus above all things. Judas's heart was never changed. They both knew Jesus. They both heard his teachings. They both saw him do some great things in the lives of people around him. But at the end of the day, Mary's heart was changed by Jesus and Judas's wasn't. And that heart change showed something. The heart change that ended up happening in Mary showed that she treasured Jesus above all things. When she broke that in front of Jesus, uh, onto Jesus, not only was that an extravagant, like, monetary gift to give Jesus, 300 denarii was, the, like, a year's wages, or other scholars have said it's the equivalent of, like, your life savings, like, pouring out your life savings on Jesus. Clearly, she saw her life savings and that gift uh, as not as valuable as the person sitting across the table from her. So she broke that open to him. But she also did that, keep in mind, this is a weird, awkward setting. Okay, she broke this open and she gets publicly chastised by one of uh, Jesus' disciples in front of everybody. She didn't just sacrifice a big gift that was monetary. She sacrificed her own reputation 
before these people. In fact, again, we like to make Judas the bad guy. You know what happened in the other stories when Jesus says, I'm sorry, when Judas says, hey, shouldn't this be given to the poor? What do the other disciples say? That's a great idea. You're right, Judas, we should do that. So Mary is sitting there before this crowd in this tense situation, not only giving an extravagant gift that costs a lot of money, but giving an extravagant gift that cost her her reputation in front of that room. But there was something more valuable to Mary in that moment than the things that she had or what people thought about her. It was, how do I make Jesus look good? In this moment, my focus is, how do I make Jesus look good? Another way of thinking about it is the difference in Mary was that she treasured Jesus in her heart more than anything else. Making Jesus look good was her greatest joy. Making Jesus look good was her greatest treasure. She wanted to use her things to help glorify Jesus. Whereas Judas was the opposite. Judas wanted to use Jesus to help glorify things. Jesus is my means to more money. Jesus is my means to looking good in front of these other guys by having a great idea. And that's because the difference was hearts changed to treasure Jesus. So when we say treasure Jesus, I know that's coffee cup kind of language. What do you mean? I don't know. I don't walk around going, hey, what do you treasure? How's your treasure life going? You know, it's like, the way to think about treasuring Jesus or treasuring anything in our life is saying, what is the thing that brings us the most joy? What is on the top of our list, the thing that we think about that brings us the most joy? Or what are the other things in our life that are rivaling uh, the place in our heart where Jesus should occupy? What are the things that say, this would give me the most security, the most joy, the most peace, the most hope? Those are the things that we treasure in our life, and, and Mary had chosen to treasure Jesus. So a question that I ask in that moment as, as we look down is to say, okay, if, if really we're looking at this picture as an example of a difference between someone who treasures Jesus above everything else and Judas is someone who's saying, hey, I treasure the things that Jesus can get me, is it really true that God calls us to treasure Jesus above all things? I mean, we sing about it. We're probably going to take communion that helps confess getting our priorities right. But I want to ask this question, is that a true thing? Is it a true thing that Jesus calls us to treasure him above all things? that he should be the number one joy of our life, that he should be the number one pursuit of our life, that there should be no rivals in our life to our allegiance to Jesus. Nothing should fight. Is that true? Well, let me give you some examples on if that's a true thing that God calls us to. You guys remember the story of the rich young ruler? You mean that? What happened in that story? The rich young ruler is this young man, very wealthy, comes to Jesus and says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gives him an easy answer. Do all the commandments. <laughs> Don't mess them up. That was a joke. That wasn't an easy answer. Uh, do all the commandments. And then uh, you would think that rich young ruler would have some humility, but he doesn't. He says, well, I've kept all those since my youth. And Jesus is like, oh, okay, cool. Well, one thing you forgot. Go sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And what does it say? That rich young ruler went away sad. Why? Because Jesus says there's something else occupying the top place of treasure in your heart. It's money and it's status. And you need to, to uh, replace that with me or you can have no part of me. He comes after money and status with that guy. And the rich young ruler starts walking away. Does Jesus say, hey, I'm just kidding. Come back. What does Jesus do? He lets him go. What about the, to uh, the Good Samaritan parable? Now, that's a parable. We're familiar with the Good Samaritan, right? Jesus is teaching to a, a whole bunch of uh, Jewish audience. 
about the parable of the Good Samaritan, about the person that's hurt and all these people pass by. But the hero of that story is a Samaritan who the Jews uh, absolutely hate. And Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. What's that point? Jesus is saying your prejudice and your ethnocentrism cannot be the top priority and treasure in your life. You can't have more pride in who you are as a person uh, at a, to judge others than you can with placing me at the top of your life. So he comes after not just the rich young rulers, materialism and possessions. He comes after anybody's prejudice and anybody's sense of self-worth as a people. Well, let's keep going. What about the calling of the first disciples? When he comes to him, he says, hey, you want to come follow me? Leave everything. Leave your jobs. Leave your home. Leave your families. Leave everything that you've ever known and come follow me. Because you know what? I am the top priority in your life above anything else that you have. Let's keep going. Jesus did this a lot, by the way. Uh, What about this? If anyone wants to come after me, he must hate his father, his mother, his brothers, and sisters. Jesus saying, your devotion to me has to be so great and so intense. You need to treasure me above all things that any other relationship in your life has to almost look like hate because of the distance and love between those two. You love me so much more than any other relationship in your life that it's almost going to look like you hate them. Jesus didn't have a self-esteem issue. Jesus didn't ever deny his worth and his value. He was saying, you, when you come to me, I have earned and deserve the top place in your life. And then the last one, if he just wants to cover it all, and that same thing, he says, hey, let's just cover everything. Whoever wants to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We could unpack deny self and take up a cross for a long time, but deny yourself says this, you are not in charge of you. You are not in charge of you. Americans don't like that. Our founding document is the Declaration of Independence, (laughs) Uh, obviously as a country, but we resonate that you are not in charge of you. Deny yourself, take up your cross, because you no longer live, but I live in you. Man, that's that's crazy. Let's, let's just think about that. We're in church. We've been reading our Bible for a long time. We kind of nod our head. Yeah, Jesus. That's crazy. If you didn't know the stories of the gospel, if you didn't know Jesus and somebody came to you and said all those things, be honest with yourself. If someone told you you had to deny yourself, your love for him had to almost look like hate for everybody else. You need to leave everything you've known and been comfortable with to follow him. You need to um, deny all those things that you would put your worth and value in as a person, whether it's your status, whether it's your money, whether it's your relationships, whether it's uh, all the accolades. You You need to put all those to death and follow him. If you didn't know the story of the gospel and that person walked in right now, would you go? Would you follow? I don't know if I would. In fact, outside of God prompting me to do it, I know I wouldn't. So what's the difference? When this Jesus who said all these things is sitting at a dinner table and somebody like Mary is saying, I'm in, and somebody like Judas is saying, I'm out, the difference is a heart change. The difference is a heart change that treasures Jesus. So then that begs the next question. I know you're like, man, we're only on point one, and you're like 20 minutes into this. It begs the second question, not what's the difference between Mary and Judas, 
But in order for that heart change to happen, we have to know what's the difference between Jesus and everything else. Everything else. Well, let me just list off some things that only Jesus offers. When you put all these together, only Jesus offers these things. Do you know that only Jesus knows you fully? I'm talking warts and all. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Jesus knows every recess of your mind, your heart, every thought you had, every impulse you've had, every motive you have. And I'm not talking about the good stuff. I'm talking about everything in our hearts that is sinful and selfish and hateful and hurtful, stuff we don't even know is there. Jesus knows that. But not only does he know that, he loves you fully. He knows you fully, and he loves you fully. Not some version of yourself that's in the future, not some you clean yourself up, or, you know, dust yourself off, pull you up by the bootstraps. No, Jesus came, and while we were still sinners, died for us. So not only does he know you fully, not only does he love you fully, here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus is the only God that you'll find out there that doesn't demand a sacrifice from you, but is the sacrifice for you. And I'm not even talking about just other religions. We could go down other religions like Islam and Buddhism. And all that. I'm talking about the religion of your job, who demands that you sacrifice your life and your time and energy at the altar of um, productivity, at the altar of a paycheck, at the altar of status. The God of work is asking you to sacrifice for him or her so that you can find your worth and value. Jesus doesn't ask you to do that. The God of relationships that causes you to sacrifice yourself to say, man, I'm only going to be complete if I can have this relationship or have this person or be accepted by this person. So let me compromise my values. Let me compromise the way I feel about myself. Let me compromise what I need. And Jesus says, you never need to do that. Jesus is the only God that doesn't require your sacrifice to appease him, but says, I'll do it for you. I'll be the sacrifice for you. The other thing that Jesus offers in that sacrifice that nobody else does is you have been bought and paid for in full by his life, death, and resurrection. What it means by that is it is finished. He completed the sacrifice for us on the cross, absorbing God's full wrath against our sin. You will, if you're in Christ, will never, ever, ever, ever be punished by God for your sins. I even mean now. Are we corrected? Are we loved? Do sin have consequences? But you're not punished by God for your sins. Jesus has been punished fully for your sins. But how do we know that that payment for my sins has been paid in full is because he rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death. So we don't have this mysterious hope. We don't have this thing out there like, I hope it all worked out. We have a signed, secured, delivered promise that our sins have been bought and paid for on the cross because Jesus is alive and reigns forevermore. Nobody else offers that. And last but not least, Jesus is the only one that is qualified as the incarnate God-man to be able to stand in the place of human sinners and also stand with the holiness and righteousness of God together. No one else can do that. So I'm telling you, you're sitting across the table from that guy. Is a pound of perfume an extravagant gift? No. Is our lives laid down at his feet an extravagant sacrifice? No. 
Is Jesus saying, I need to be the top treasure in pursuit of your life a crazy ask? No. What's crazy is a guy like Judas saying, how can I get a few more dollars from that guy? How can I make myself look good? How can I use this person to inflate myself? That is crazy. I love how the Apostle Paul says this concept of his experience with Jesus and how that changed his outlook on everything else in the world. Paul says this in Philippians 3, 7 through 8. You may have heard this before. Apostle Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. When God changes your heart to treasure him, there's a reorientation of all of life. The things that we thought gave us value and worth, the things that we fought for for our security, get thrown out the window because nothing is more secure than your God dying for your sins and rising again and saying, you are mine. Nothing is more secure than that. So the difference between Jesus and everything else leads us to ask us the question, what's the difference in me then? If I'm sitting around that table, if I'm reclining with Jesus, if I'm seeing who he is, who am I in the story and what's the difference in me that makes me more like Mary than Judas? And it's really what we've already been talking about. Has my life been changed by Jesus? Now, here's the thing. There's an appropriate amount of weight that we should be feeling right now. Because when we talk about Jesus calling us to deny ourselves and uh, put to death our own life and our own whims and our own pursuits and follow him wholeheartedly and completely and treasure him above all things, I'm telling you this much, that's an impossible ask. It's impossible for you and I in this room, Mary didn't even do it the whole time. She just gets credit for this one little story. You and I could have a good little story one time. Nobody keeps that up. And you know what? Jesus knew that. Jesus knew you and I didn't have the capacity to live at a perfect level of holiness our whole life. Honestly, we don't even live at a perfect level of holiness at any moment of our life. So what I'm telling you right now is the standard of Jesus asking us to make him our treasure above all things is a standard you and I cannot keep. And you know what? That's the point. That's why Jesus came. Not so he would tell you how to be more righteous. Not so he would tell you how to get your act together. Not so he would even compromise on the standard of holiness and say, okay, you're good enough as you are. Don't worry about it. No, no. He says, no, the standard of holiness stays the same. You can't get there. I'm going to take you there. Jesus is the only one that lived a full and perfect life with his standard of holiness exactly the same as God the Father. He's the only one that lived perfectly with the priorities of life in order. He's the only one that genuinely treasured God above all things at all time. And he says, you know what? You can't do it, so I'm going to pay for your sins on the cross, and I'm going to give you that perfect record. So the question for us right now when we ask the difference, I don't want you to ask the question of, do I keep Jesus as my perfect treasure at all times and all ways and all things? Have I sold all my life? Have I I laid everything down. I don't want you to ask yourself the question because that's not the right question because I'll tell you what, you haven't. None of us have. And that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. Here's the questions we need to be asking. It's two. Do you believe that Jesus should be 
the treasure above all things? Should he be? Because if you don't believe that, I, I don't know if you really have seen him for who he is. So the first question is, just ask yourself, do I believe that he should be? Not, do I put him in the right place? Should he be in the right place? And the second thing I'd ask you is, is there a spark of a fraction of a small desire for him to be that place in your life? Do you have the want to want to that? Because I think if you can say yes to both those, then that's a pretty good spot to be. Jesus, yes, you deserve to be the number one treasure. Like Mary, I want to pour out everything I have before you. I want to give my treasures away to make you look, glor- uh, make you look more glorious. I want that. And God, I, I don't do it perfectly, but I want you to be better. Well, then how do you know? How do you know if you can answer yes to this? Well, there's a couple things that I ask myself. How do I know if I'm treasuring Jesus? How do I know if I want to do the best? How, well, let me ask you a couple things. What do you pray for? Assuming that you pray, what do you pray for? And here's the thing I ask myself, what, what do I pray for? When I pray, there's a few things that kind of come across the list all the time. I pray for provision. As somebody who's got more than I need, for some reason I'm still asking for more. <laughs> but I pray for provision. And you know what? God calls me to pray for provision. That's not a bad prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. So that's not a bad prayer. I pray for protection over myself, over my children, over my family. You know what? That's not a bad prayer. God tells us to pray for protection. I pray for healing. People that I know that are sick, people that I know that are hurting, I pray for healing. You know what? That's not a bad prayer. God tells you to pray for healing. But the, here's the question I want to ask myself. How often do I pray for holiness? How often do I pray, God, make me more like you. Show me where I'm sinning. Show me where I'm not treasuring you. Show me where I'm pursuing things of the world more than you and help me to turn from those things in in holiness. Or, this is the one I don't like to pray, so I'm not going to admit that I pray a lot. Hey God, that, that protection, that provision, that healing, if you need to remove those things in order for my life to point to how good you are, take those things. If you're going to look more glorified in my life because you actually take away my provision and I say, he's still good. Because you take away my health or the health of the people that I love and we still say, God can take my life, but you're still good. If you can take away the protection that we have and the securities that we have and we can still say, my security hasn't changed, that's breaking fragrance in your house. That's filling your home with the perfume of a glorified Jesus is saying, not just protection, provision, health, but even without those things, make me I'm telling you, I got to ask myself that question. And here's the second thing I would ask. When you sit still in your own mind and your own heart, and you honestly answer this question, a fill in the blank, what comes up? If I only had blank, then I would be happy and able to rest. If only I had blank, then I would be happy and able to rest. Not just happy. I throw in the rest thing right now, not just because I have three under three and I don't know what rest feels like. That's not why I throw in the rest. I think I throw in and I have rest because we're all striving. We all are chasing something, something that we think is going to make us, and and we're tired. We're tired of chasing it. Some of us have been chasing it our whole life. What are the things that would make me happy? Because if whatever you fill in that blank, that's the dangerous place that might be taken over that spot over Jesus 
in your treasure hierarchy. If only I had this bank account. If only I got this promotion. If only I had this relationship. If only I had this acceptance. If only I had their love. If only I had this. If only I had this. It just might be something that we're treasuring. And here's the crazy thing. We'll talk about this maybe another time. I can combine the two, and sometimes I'm Judas because I'm using my prayers to ask Jesus to give me the thing that my heart wants more than Jesus. Huh? Yeah, you're like, why didn't you just talk about that the whole time? So let's kind of pull it back. This crazy story in the midst of this big tension of these people wanting to kill Jesus. Jesus has this dinner party. There's a person who used to be dead there. There's a whole bunch of people. This one woman shows this amazing act of worship to Jesus. Who cares about the cost, both financially and in reputation with the people? She says Jesus is worth it. What's the difference? Her heart had been changed by the Christ, the Messiah, and she had life in his name. Now, we're not going to live up to that standard of always doing that, so we don't pursue that as the bar with which we must live our life, but we ask ourselves, do I even want that, though? Is Jesus worthy of that kind of devotion? Do I have a small hope for that? And I ask those questions, asking God to say, move me in that direction. I'll close with um, going back to New York. So <clears throat> eventually, I got off. Have, has anybody ever been on the subway? Okay, it's not like the turnaround on the highway where you get off and you turn around and you go back. It's like, what do you mean I have to get up and walk six blocks to get into a different subway to go back the other way? This is crazy. I'm not ever coming back. Um, anyways, so I had to get off that train and go walk across a couple blocks, get on a different train to get on the subway to go down to Ground Zero. Uh, and so I got there. I traveled down. I get out. I walked to Ground Zero. It's this beautiful summer day um, in New York. And I walk up. And you guys might have seen the pictures of the memorials, but um, where the Twin Towers were, there's now at one part kind of the footprint of where one of the towers were that they made the big memorial. It's the uh, kind of black waterfall that, that kind of cascades down and the names of the people that were lost around that. And it's really this beautiful, solemn, uh, and I mean it's in a great, like just really simple, like really like respectful memorial to them. But then over, if you haven't seen, they rebuilt one of the, the towers, and it's this amazing structure. Like you almost are looking up at it and you can't even see the top. It's so big. So here I am, sitting here, looking up at this incredible tall building on one hand, a, an incredible feat of human engineering, and I'm also looking down here, contrasting it with this hole in the ground where people have lost their lives where a building used to stand. And two thoughts came across my mind. I'm sitting there looking at this huge, amazing building, and I'm thinking, a New Yorker going to work, walking by these buildings on September 10th, had no thought in the world that a day later this would be on the ground. And I'm looking at this building saying, this is impressive. Tomorrow this could be gone. And I don't mean that to say, like, insensitive or cavalierly, but, like, terrorists can happen, something can happen. Like, like let's not be too proud of this building because in a day this could be gone because it literally just happened because I'm looking over at a hole in the ground where it did happen. And I'm thinking the futility of things that we value and we put our, our um, security in. That tower is just, it's a beautiful tower, but it's, it's not a monument of our forever existing as a country and forever, man, it could be gone tomorrow. And then the futility of what we might be putting our hope in. And then secondly, I look at that memorial and there's like 3,000 names around it. And again, not to be morbid, but let's be real. At some point, you and I are going to have our names etched in a memorial somewhere. 
It may be just your name on a plot. It may not be as an act of terrorism or anything like that. But I'm looking at that and I'm thinking not only the futility in this building that could be gone tomorrow that we're so impressed by, but I'm looking at the brevity of life that was lost here this day and realizing that's all of our aim. And I'm asking myself, I have this short little life. What do I treasure? What do I treasure? Am I putting things in? Am I building a life like this tower that looks really cool, but in a moment is going to be gone? Am I denying the fact that at some day my, num- my days are numbered and I'm just kind of floating around and I'm not really making the most of my time? What is it that I treasure and how am I investing my life? Because here's the thing. Mary gave up an expensive gift, but she didn't really. She traded in some fragrance for an eternal gift that will not change. Let me tell you about Judas. Judas in the story was dead within two weeks and didn't take any of the money with him. So what I'm saying here is, I'm asking myself, man, am am I treasuring Jesus? And am I doing it in a way that says, I want to make the most of this life. I want to send it forward. I want to invest in eternity. So let me pray and let me ask God to um, help remind us of the beauty of who Jesus is and the impulse to say, man, I want to make my life count for that. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we look at this story of Mary and of Judas, and 